Good morning, everybody. Glad to see. I, I was a little surprised. I thought maybe with the the weather and all that, we wouldn't have this many out. That and virus. But anyway, um, glad so many of you could make it this morning. And I'd like for you to <clears throat> look with me in Matthew 6, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning in the fifth verse. The Sermon on the Mount takes up in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 chapters. And so this is um, the second chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is addressing the whole business of seeking approval from whom? either our Father in heaven or other people. Uh, there, a lot of that was taking place that he was preaching and speaking against. But in verse 5 through 15 is the passage that I want us to look at today. And, and I don't know how, um, whether we'll get through it today or not. Um, and we may spend a couple Sundays on this passage. Verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, okay, they got seen. <clears throat> But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We know this prayer, which is the heart of this passage, as the Lord's Prayer might be better if we call it a model prayer. It's no place in Scripture do we find it called the Lord's Prayer. But at any rate, it is a model prayer. Let me give you some introduction here. Um, first of all, we need to define prayer. The word prayer has a couple of roots. The word that is here translated prayer has several roots that it comes from. The first 
two are the word with and the word vow. Bringing or expressing with a vow to God is part of the definition of prayer. We often think of prayer as a petition, asking for something. The root meaning of prayer includes that, but much more. It is really, I am binding myself to God in a vow to love, serve, obey, that on yeah okay now <clears throat> a second or really third greek word that goes into the definition of prayer is to pour out it means to pour out the depths of my heart the sincerest truest feelings, desires of my heart. I'm to pour out to God. David said in one of the Psalms that we are to, he said, O ye people, pour out your hearts before God. That's prayer. And it is made up of a number of elements that I think we need to pay attention to. I, I hope that looking at this wonderful passage of Scripture, this model prayer, we'll learn to model it and check our praying to see whether or not we pray like this. What is our praying like are we following not necessarily the rote words of this, though it's good to pray the Lord's Prayer, but the, this is a, then a model. It's not merely to be repeated woodenly and somehow that's our prayer. This, these are principles that we're to have when we pray. These are to be the desires of our heart. <clears throat> Prayer is really another two things. It's an expression of dependence. Prayer is an admission that I'm dependent on God. That I am unable by myself to accomplish a thing. I can't even pray 
unless God gives me the grace and the strength and the direction what to pray. I can't pray for grace unless God gives me grace to pray. I'm dependent on God. True prayer, then, is so far away from the vending machine kind of praying that unfortunately an awful lot of people do. It is punch, you know, E20 and I get a Snickers. That kind of praying is way too much, we find. I don't want to spend too much time getting off the track, but we have gone through in the last couple of decades a series of different kinds of prayers. Books have been written about them. Studies have been put out about them. DVDs and, you know, uh, workbooks. The prayer of Jabez. And you got prayer of everything from prayer of Jabez key links. Uh, or, you know, key rings to prayer of Jabez books to prayer of Jabez whatever. It's treating God exactly like a vending machine. I pray this prayer, which that particular prayer is save me from evil, so forth. Okay, that's a good prayer. But the idea that I, it's a rabbit's foot kind of thinking. It's, a, it's, it's basically superstition. That's not what Jesus is describing here. When he uses these words, these root words, I pray implying a vow to God. I pray pouring my heart out before him. I pray as one who is sovereign and upon whom I am completely dependent. That's a whole different kind of praying. Prayer is an expression of dependence and of allegiance, both. It is, Lord, I come to you because you're the only being that can supply whatever it is I bring to you in the way of a petition. But I also come to you with a deep sense of allegiance and loyalty and love and faith and confidence in his character. Hear me. So that if he doesn't give me the petition, maybe at all, or maybe in the way I wish he did or the timing he did, I still trust him. That's, that's the core that has to be the case in my heart before I even approach him. That's why the scripture says, if you come unto God, if you're going to come unto God, you must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who will diligently seek him. He keeps his word. He's true. He's faithful. He's wise. He's all-powerful. All of that 
I have to have as I approach him. If I don't, not only on the one side is my prayer futile, but if I don't have it, I can always ask this God I'm approaching to give it to me. He's in the business of changing our hearts. He's in the business of inspiring faith and hope and love for Him. Now, when we don't pray or when we pray um, maybe words without the spirit of prayer, lots of people will pray. Um, I remember... I remember we had some great um, neighbors back in um, Indiana when we were living there, um, <clears throat> Greek Orthodox, and dear people, the praying that he did, and we've visited about religion and so forth, um, I would see him back out of his driveway and put it in drive, and like clockwork, as he put it in drive, started down uh, through the, the neighborhood, uh, he would do a quick, that was his praying. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the surface, simplistic, um, wrote wooden kind of stuff. Really, if we don't pray at all, or if we pray superficial kind of kinds of prayers, here's what we're doing. We are doing our best to live independently of God. Even though we may pray every day, we're living independently of God, which is the core of sin. The core of sin in the Garden of Eden was become independent of God. You know better, you know fuller, you know greater, and you can reject God's commandments for you. You don't need God. What did the devil say? He said, if you'll go ahead and disobey God, you'll be like God, which is independent. So if I don't pray with a sense of dependence, and a sense of allegiance to him, I am really acting out the core value of sin. I won't get anywhere with God. <clears throat> Further, there's what we want to call in the introduction here, before we get to the prayer itself, uh, Jesus talks about the what we would say, I think, the, the motive of prayer. Let's call it that. Because he said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. So he starts out here with two perils that he warns us of. First, don't pray like the hypocrites who pray for the benefit of those around them. I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think we have as much issue with that today as we do the next peril. But I do think I do think that knowing what they were doing in that day matters a lot. 
the motive was, the Pharisees especially, but a lot of the Jewish um, religious people, it, notice he said, you pray in the synagogues or in the street corners. You know what he's referring to there? It was similar to uh, Muslims today who there are certain days or certain times in the day, certain hours, it's you're to pray. The Jews had 9 o'clock was an hour of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon was an hour of prayer, um, the hour of prayer. And there, people would either gather at the temple, gather in a synagogue, and they would pray. Okay, that's one thing. That's praying at church. There, were, there was a practice to, quote, accidentally get caught at the hour of prayer, not in the synagogue. You intentionally do your best to get your heading to the synagogue, and when, when the clock strikes three, which is the hour of prayer, oh, I didn't make it indoors to the synagogue. I guess I'll have to pray here in the marketplace. Purposely trying to make themselves visible to everyone else, they would get out their, they called them phylacteries, they'd get out these long, it's too much of a, too long of a story, and they would pray. All to be seen of people. Jesus said, you were successful. <laughs> yeah, they saw you. So what? I don't think, now I've been around that. I've been in church my whole life. I've been around that. <clears throat> I have seen people put on a show so everyone would think that they are religious. But I don't think that's quite the issue it was then. I think the second peril that he tells us here is this second peril can happen either in public or totally in private. And it is, when you're praying, seven, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, I have to be careful here, not the, to discourage um, I don't want to discourage repetition in prayer. We all talk to God about things more than once. And there are things in life, there are circumstances, there are issues that may burden us for years. We carry those to God. So that's repetition. But it's not the kind of repetition that Jesus is talking about here. It is a repetition that is based on or the manner is pestering God. And the rationale behind it is that he somehow doesn't realize the situation. He doesn't hear on the first request. I need to tell him again and again and again that somehow begging gets further into his heart. But Jesus told us why not to do that. Not only because it indicates I'm not really trusting that God hears me. But he said, he already knows. Therefore, here's the, th here's the thought. When I pray, and you pray, 
we're giving God no information at all. He already knows what I need. He already knows how much it's bugging me. He knows how fretful I am. He, know, he knows. He knows. What a wonderful thought, though. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask Him. He doesn't say, don't ask me. He said, no, you go ahead. This is how I've set things up. You come to me and you lay your requests before me with thanksgiving, he said. But I'm not informing God. Whenever, if we even think, man, Lord, you don't even realize how bad off. Yeah, he does. He knows. Another thing. He not only knows what we need before we ask, He knows what we need before we know that we need it. Think about that. Not just He knows before I bring it to Him. He knows before I know to bring it to Him. I don't even know I've got a need. But He knows. He knows I'm going to find out whenever. He already knows. The motive then and the manner of praying can be perils. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the heathen. They think by their much speaking. That is a characteristic of virtually every kind of praying that we see. It's rote repetition over and over and over and over and you have some religions, some of the Eastern religions, what do they always do? They will have a massive gong of some kind and hit that with some hammer of some kind. What, why do they do that? It's to wake up their God. That's why they do it. So he'll wake up. I'm grateful for the psalm. He that keeps Israel, keeps us, neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't take naps. He's awake. He's up all night. He knows. <clears throat> now, the model prayer then is this. First, I want to look at the God, the person that we are petitioning. And if we break up the prayer, there's the, there's the opening phrase, which is the being we're addressing. And then after the being we're addressing, there are either six or seven, depending on how you want to count it. There are either six or seven petitions, specific petitions, Three, the first three, are for God's sake. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The next three or four, depending on how you count the last one, whether it's two or one, are for us. And the second set of petitions for us 
begin with the most pressing but actually least important things. But it's give us our daily bread. Then it proceeds to forgiving our trespasses. It, it proceeds then to the spiritual things that are even more important than our daily bread. Not that he says don't ask about daily bread, but there are more important things even than that. Now, so the model, the person that we are talking to, notice this, the first phrase I want to look at, our Father. No place does he say, my Father. He doesn't tell us to pray, my Father. I've, I've, I've wondered about that a lot. Why does he say, our Father? Yes, he was talking to more than one person when he said this. But this goes down through the ages. This is to us. It's to everyone. It's including, and he says, when you are praying to your father, go into your closet and pray in secret to him that knows in secret. So why does he not say, the, use the personal, our father? It's because for true believers and I, I, let me make it as clear as I can. I hardly ever think in these terms. But apparently Jesus wants us to think in terms of the church universal. We get, some of you probably do too, we'll get the magazine, The Voice of the Martyrs, every month. And the exhortation is always pray for the persecuted Christians around the world, that they are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we're to bear one another's burdens. And when they weep, we weep. When they rejoice, we rejoice. There is a brotherhood that I think most of us are not very confident of or very conscious of. We think, unfortunately, we, we, first of all, we forget the Lord's prayer himself in John 17. I pray that they may be one, that the world might know that the Father sent me. Today, we, we look at, especially America is probably the worst, because of our freedom regarding religion we have the most denominations of any country in the whole world um, we've we've got thousands of denominations i have an out-of-date book on denominations in the u.s the things that thick it's probably got two or three or four denominations per page given the history how many they've got and all over the place all over the place You've got headquarters, you know, headquarters are in Sodaville, Oregon, which if you've ever been to Sodaville, there's, it's like Muddy Gap, okay? That's our headquarters. We've got eight churches, averaging 20 apiece. I tell you, we've got a movement. It's insane. And our country is full of it. And you have, and I'm not picking on probably the greatest group, 
you'll have are the various kinds of independent churches. And they're independent. I used to, um, both my sons were for a while in Tuscaloosa, um, and finishing up some education there at Alabama. And when we would go visit them, I would go run, um, you know, on the roads and the neighborhoods and whatever. Um, and the typical deep southeast, you know, there are 15 churches in every intersection. Um, and you've only got four corners of most intersections. And I would run past church after church after church, independent, and I still remember one because I always had to take a turn there. Independent, what, what was it? In, <clears throat> it was such and such Baptist church. Independent, conservative, something else, King James only. <clears throat> I, I, that's, where I that's where I took my turn to get back to the apartment. In the course of it, I passed Church of Christ, Church of God, Church of God Cleveland, Church of God Anderson, Church of God Holiness. I'd, I live, I guess we've grown up in that. I don't think in terms, it's wrong. I don't think in terms of our Father. Does that make any sense? All I think about is their, com their competitors and somebody left here and went to them. We don't think like Jesus wanted us to think. Now, are there good reasons, unfortunately, for divisions? Yeah, there are. Because the longer the church of Christ has gone on 2,000 years now, you're going to continue to have heresies, all kinds of false teachings, false movements that we will stand up against. We have to. It's an unfortunate part of a fallen world. But it seems to destroy the notion of brotherhood that God expects us to express when we pray. Our Father. The concept of I am identifying with other brothers and sisters more than biological bonds is they're Christians. They're Christians. Father. The word father here means at least three things. One, a parent being the source of all. Second, Preserver. He upholdeth all things by the word of his power. And provider. He gives, Peter said, everything the entire earth needs for life and for godliness. Everything. Now, somehow, let me stop there. The idea of that when I bow the knee, I bow my head, I come into the presence of this Father in heaven that I, I guess a message that I, I want us to reverence God. 
We've lost an awful lot of that. Now, I'm not, after saying all I said about brotherhood, let me thump the Catholics for a minute. Um, I'm not going to thump the Catholics. But in spite of, I have very good reasons that I'm not a part of the Catholic Church. Still, something that has always, and I use the word right correctly, something that I've always envied and wanted if you've ever if you ever get a chance to go to a cathedral or when our son was in Notre Dame you walk into the basilica there on campus the golden dome and you walk into that it's a massive building but there, there is such a sense of reverence. And the people that walk through that, it, it's no one says a word, and there's no sign saying anything to you. But when you walk in that, it's quiet. Not because there's nobody else there. When we've walked in there, there are scores of people in there, looking at walking around. Maybe little groups of people, but everybody just automatically is quiet. And if some kid, you know, gets carried away, it's, you know, they put their hand over the, shh. Listen, we desperately need a restoration, even in our private praying of reverence for God. He's God. This phrase, though, is a perfect balance. And maybe we'll end with this, but maybe not. Our Father is the nearness, the approachableness of this great God the kindness, I can pour my heart out to Him. And after saying, Our Father, how many of us ever sense that that we're somehow competing for His attention? We don't. We sense, I've got His attention. And we do. You know, God can multitask. (laughs) He's got seven billion people that He knows the very hairs of their head. He knows their needs. He knows their hopes, their fears, their tears. He knows it all. So even though we say, Our Father, I never feel like His eyes and his ears are riveted on anybody else except me. And that's not, I don't mean that in a self centered look at me thing. We all sense God's listening to me. I matter to him. Our Father. But then he says, which art in heaven? What does that mean? That means. That's distance, if you want to call it that. 
that's transcendence. Our Father is imminence. He's close at hand. The Bible says He's closer, He's nearer than my hands or my feet. Why does He always, everywhere, hundreds of places, don't be afraid. Why? I'm with you. I'm right here. I'm right here. The other side of it is Psalm 139. No matter where I go, I can't get away from His presence. Now that is the most comforting thing to the believer, and it ought to make every hair on your head stand straight up if you're not right with God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and evil. You don't get away from God. That's a comfort to those of us who love Him. Fearful. Fearful that He knows what I'm up to. Jesus said it here. He who sees everything that's done in secret, He knows. What a perfect balance then that ought to produce love, affection, childlike approach to God with a careful reminder He's in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. The heavens of the heavens can't contain Him. So we, we have a warm heart as we approach Him, a warm reception from this loving Father, but respect, reverence. He's God. Let's bow our heads. And I want us, in how many ever Sundays we look at this prayer, I want you to read it repeatedly, if you would, through the week. And I want us to check our own reverence and faith and confidence and dependence and allegiance as we pray that our, this is our life's blood. This is the umbilical cord to God. Father in heaven, help us pray in the manner and the motive that you want us to pray. Give us a sense, I ask, of who you are. And I think, Lord, we, it's a mistake to put you so far above and away that we have no relationship with you. But Lord, I think we've gone the other direction and we've made you a servant of us and kind of a buddy. And we've lost, in many ways, we've lost the fact that you are the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. We can't even look on your face and live. So Lord, I pray that you would help us as believers to learn to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. 
In his name we ask. Amen.